I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, The Trade Guys are live with guest host Hun Kwok at the Retail Industry Leaders Association Supply Chain Conference in Dallas, Texas. They talk about the impact coronavirus is having on global supply chains and the precedent USMCA may set for the future of supply chain management. Stay tuned for a live Q&A in part two. Good morning, everybody. I'm Hun Kwok, your guest host for today's episode of The Trade Guys. We're recording live at the Retail Industry Leaders Supply Chain Conference in Dallas, Texas. Every year, RELA hosts the world's premier supply chain conference, bringing together supply chain professionals to discuss emerging trends, opportunities, and challenges. In the audience with us today are the experts in distribution, transportation, logistics, customs, compliance. These are all the folks that make trade happen every day. This is like a homecoming for me. For nearly five years, I was Vice President of International Trade at RELA. Now I serve as Senior Director for Government Affairs at Under Armour. But today I'll be hosting the Trade Guys podcast in my personal capacity as a participant of the RELA Supply Chain Conference. It is always a timely gathering given the future of trade in the news. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be talking about the challenges presented by the emerging coronavirus and the new USMCA. This is the US-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or known as NAFTA 2.0, and what this means for global value chains and retailers like you. So let's kick things off with a topic that's front of mind for our supply chain professionals and probably most American consumers, the coronavirus. So guys, we just saw news from the CDC indicating that we could possibly face a, a pandemic when it comes to the coronavirus. Talk a little bit about what this means for supply chain professionals and what should they be thinking about in addressing this challenge. Well, thank you. And uh, first, let me uh, offer my thanks for the invitation to be here. Bill and I enjoy uh, meeting with people who actually do this for a living. And so we'll, we'll try to tell you what we, we do and what we think from the Washington standpoint. The coronavirus is uh, one that we, we don't know nearly as much as we'd like to know about its ultimate course. We know where it started, roughly speaking. Uh, we don't know patient zero. We don't know the extent of it. And it is a challenge for, as this class of viruses are, for public health authorities. One of the things that makes it probably the most challenging is it is contagious when patients are asymptomatic. So you can feel well, you can have running no fever, no visible sign of an illness, but you yourself can have the coronavirus and be able to transmit it to others. So there are vectors that we just don't know about yet. Uh, we'll learn more over the time. Now, commercially, what usually happens with these kinds of things, SARS was a recent example of it, where you, essentially you have a V-shaped uh, economy. You, you have an immediate decline in services as people stay home and stay away and, and quarantine themselves, uh, and then a, a fairly fast recovery, almost the same slope of recovery. This one has, uh, has a little longer slope, but maybe a little deeper. We don't know yet. This is part of the things of new diseases. It did happen in China, which is the 
center of factory Asia. And in the city where it happened, think of it as Chicago. It is an intersection of all the, the key infrastructure lines. And of course, many components, I think automotive components and others, are produced there. So it's going to be disruptive. We don't know how. Public health authorities seem to be doing the right thing. The one caution I have is that recall the Spanish flu of 1918, uh, which two, three percent of the world died as a result of the Spanish flu. One of the reasons is it was wartime and governments refused to share information with each other. And th this is my biggest concern now is transparency, is getting a handle on what's really happening here in China and elsewhere. Uh, so that public health authorities can collaborate and do the best job. We're probably a year or two away from a, vi from a vaccine. Uh, there are some cures that appear promising, but we have work to do. Well, uh, unlike Scott, I don't remember the flu of 1918. <laughs> I do want to put this in a, uh, a little bit of a political context. Uh, it appears that Peter Navarro is borrowing a, a line from, from uh, Rahm Emanuel, never waste a good crisis and is going around trying to convince companies that now is the time to uh, move your supply chains out of China. Decouple. Is his, yeah. de now is the time to decouple. Aside from the fact that it's sort of taking advantage of a tragedy, which I think is sort of uh, distasteful, it, it is in effect, though, magnifying a trend that, that uh, I think anyway is, is, is going on anyway for a variety of reasons. And you all know this better than I do. It depends a little bit on, on your what industry you're in and, and what, your, uh, what your business model is. But uh, there are a number of reasons to uh, leave China for, that have nothing to do with the coronavirus. This will probably uh, accelerate that trend. At the same time, if it becomes a pandemic and is everywhere, you still have the question of, so where do you go? You know, it, uh, today it may make sense if you have a, uh, a supply chain that's dependent on production in, in Hubei province to think about alternatives. But uh, now Korea is apparently a, you know, a, a hot spot. And if there's going to be others, including Europe, Italy, um, it's going to be a dilemma, I think, for supply chain managers, not only to figure out knowing where to leave, but knowing where to go. And the folks here are in charge of bringing goods in and out of uh, the country. I think one of the challenges, in addition to the sourcing challenges faced already by the tariffs and other challenges in logistics, there's also the question about operations. So in a retail setting, you're interacting with uh, customers on a daily basis. You're bringing them into your store, offering products for them to buy. How does that how does the coronavirus potentially impact the ability to sell products? How does it impact the operations of some of the work that these folks do? Well, if you look at places where, it's, uh, where there's been a number of cases, basically it's, it's at least for a time, it shut down the economy. Uh, retail closes, but nobody shows up. There, there are no customers uh, in, in China. They've, people more or less have been ordered to stay put. Uh, which uh, <laughs> puts a dent in, in retail. Uh, it remains to be seen what will happen in this country. It's not here yet. CDC said yesterday it's inevitably coming. Uh, we'll have to deal with it and see what, uh, what measures uh, local governments put in. But it could, be, uh, uh, it could be a real disaster from a retail standpoint. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, the goods themselves, no matter where they come from, uh, don't appear to be vectors for the disease. In other words, you can't, you can't get the coronavirus from touching some good or some object that, that was touched by somebody who had the disease. I mean, it's just, but that doesn't mean people won't use their imagination. It's, pandemics are difficult in part because of what's not known. And most 
people fill in the blanks when they don't know something, and it's uh, it's, hap it's it's part of it's part of being human. I mean, we have we are we are built-in risk detectors. And human beings avoid risks for very good evolutionary reasons, okay? It, it, it led to our ancestors' survival, okay? And so, uh, but uh, that behavior is likely to show up at retail. So the best thing to do is get as much knowledge as we can about it to make that knowledge available to everybody and to, to be a, to a clear idea of, of where this is going and, and what to expect. We, we thought about doing this podcast with surgical masks, <laughs> and then we decided that might instill panic, and so we're, I left mine it, in my room. It makes it difficult to record a podcast that way. Plus, the listening audience wouldn't have gotten the joke, so. <laughs> True. So, CDC, let's make sure that we uh, wash our hands here. I think the, uh, the last question that I would mention here in this context of the coronavirus is, what does this mean for the phase two China trade deal? The administration uh, last year was able to conclude a trade deal with China that sets forth additional purchases of U.S. farm product. It delayed the tr tranche four tariffs. What does this mean for phase two? I think it, um, it slows it down because both governments are going to be preoccupied. Uh, it was going slow anyway. I mean, my thesis on this, which I felt, uh, I believe for a long time and I haven't changed my view, is that I think the president's, our president's first choice would be an agreement right before the election that he can sell, like always, as a great agreement that solves all of our problems. It might or might not, but that's what he'll say about it. So plan A is to try to do that, um, and I don't think you're going to see those negotiations. Uh, the pace of that is going to, will pick up a little later, not now anyway. Uh, I think plan B, which he's already telegraphed, is if he doesn't think he can produce something he can sell, uh, to say, well, the Chinese, uh, th they think I'm going to lose. They don't want to agree to anything because they think the Democrat will be s softer. So I'm going to postpone phase two until after the election when they know they've got me for four more years and they'll fold. So his plan is, uh, you know, never to lose, you know, either to get a good agreement that he can brag about beforehand or to blame the Chinese for not producing one afterwards. Is there a chance that it will address any of the problems that we've identified in the Section 301 report? Subsidies, preference for state-owned enterprises, forced technology transfer? No. Well, uh, look, it's it, good economics, but for the Chinese government, it's bad politics. It undermines the party's control. They're not going to do that. Already, the phase one deal is a, is a marvelous example of the president's narrative engineering. Most of us who do business in China knew there were problems all along. Forced technology transfer, uh, IP theft, those kinds of things were well known. There were big nagging problems. And most of us, myself included, were delighted to see this at least mentioned and, and partially addressed in the phase one deal. Whether, they'll, whether any of them will, will be truly addressed remains to be seen. But all anybody talks about are the additional purchases in dollars. This was, you know, the president's communication skills are unrivaled in this space. He talked about the big deal is they're going to buy this much of amount of this stuff and more of this. And, and that's where the, that's what the politicians talk about. Now, it turns out the, uh, among the negotiators of the phase one agreement, the genius in the room was the person who inserted the force majeure clause. Uh, which is in the agreement, so acts of God, like the coronavirus, unforeseen circumstances can lead to consultations. So that may, may be the, the best safety valve uh, in the phase one. But uh, um, for me, it's one thing to shift purchases around and, and, and deliver the, the numerical expectations of phase one. It's another thing to conduct the domestic reform uh, that will actually make Chinese markets contestable and improve the outcomes for both U.S. firms and anybody who contests it. 
Bill, you talked a little bit about the intellectual property challenges. Uh, this is the core reason why the administration instituted the Section 301 tariffs. These are the tariffs on Chinese goods being imported. You know, what, in talking to some of the tech companies that have lobbied over the years to the administration, asking for their help to advise and, and really challenge the Chinese government to improve their intellectual property practices, what I've heard from some of these tech companies today is saying, you know, we actually want the phase one deal to be done as quickly as possible so that we ourselves can go in and negotiate our own specific packages because we don't want to get tied up. The, the delay in enforcing intellectual property or forced technology transfers, we want to be able to do that on our own where we don't have to wait for everyone else, all the other issues to be resolved. So talk a little bit about what that means though when you're asking for specific one-offs as opposed to a full package deal, like a phase two deal. Is that too challenging to wrap our heads around? Well, look, the changes to IP law were promised at least twice before, at least to the two previous administrations. So maybe it'll happen, maybe they'll do something. I'm, uh, it's all uncertain. I think our companies have a dilemma and I confess to some lack of sympathy for their dilemma because it's, it's an old dilemma and they've, they've all seen a company coming, particularly the high-tech companies. Mm -hmm. And it's a dilemma between short-term profit and long-term competitiveness or long-term competition. The Chinese want their technology uh, and they've demonstrated their ability to acquire it, uh, in some cases illegally by theft, in some cases by forced transfer, in some cases legally, the companies provide it willingly. Uh, it all leads to the same thing, which is, uh, short-term profit and, and short-term success in the market to the extent that the Chinese government wants to give it to you. But long run, you face competition. Look at their 13th five-year plan. Look at Made in China 2025. You know, what is their plan to develop national champions in these sets of critical technologies? And what is the point of national champions? To take on current world leaders, which are mostly American companies, and beat them. That's fine goal. I mean, countries can aspire. Our job is to, you know, fight back and not let that happen. But uh, the American companies are in the awkward position on the one hand of wanting to fight that, looking ahead, but are also facilitating it by their presence there. And I think they've been too often, uh, too often paralyzed. Um, if they think they can one by one negotiate uh, good uh, IP agreements with the Chinese, I think they're fooling themselves. Frankly. Good luck with that. Yeah. So. I've been talking to a lot of the participants at this supply chain conference, and one of the messages that I heard from uh, one person was, on Friday nights at four o'clock, you were always sticking by your computers, by your phones, because you didn't know if the administration was going to make a trade announcement. So I just wanted to see a show of hands, how many people were waiting by their phones, waiting for a tariff announcement? No? All right, okay, I see a couple people here. So. I think everyone's holding their breath trying to figure out, is there going to be a tranche four tariff announcement? Well, I don't think right at the moment. Now look. Not soon, no. Yeah, I, look, uh, it's pretty fairly clear to me that President Trump likes his job and he wants to keep it. That's all you need to know for 2020, all right? Because he'll, he will want the economy to perform. His, his selling message is, well, you can find it on his website, this is not, not a, a trade secret. It is promises made, promises kept but he's mostly going to campaign on the strong economy. And I don't think you'll see anything that, uh, any action, uh, unilateral action that will interfere with that. Now, look, having said that, I think it's important to step back. For the people in this room, you are, the, uh, you are sort of the unsung heroes of this whole e economic recovery that's happened because 
despite all the burdens, despite all the, the roadblocks that you have to deal with every single Friday, and so, or felt like that, and, uh, and how miserable the, the administration is making your life, consumer never saw this. The first year of, on a macro level, the first year of President Trump's actions on tariffs, the net price of imports declined. They didn't go up. It's, a, it's the strangest phenomenon. And it's really, when you think about it, it's because of people like you who managed this, who, who, who had the, the knowledge and the intensity and the, the, the plain hard work to overcome these challenges. And uh, so I don't know what that means for the future, whether, whether your, your effectiveness has made the, the administration more likely to take further actions, but at least not for 2020. All right, we're gonna take that one as advice to the bank for 2020. I think we're gonna hold and just watch to see what's gonna happen. So let's move on to the next topic that I asked these guys to talk about, which is the USMCA. This is the US-Mexico-Canada agreement that the Trump administration concluded and uh, Congress um, passed. So we are in a state now of, I guess we're waiting for all the countries to ratify the agreement and then we'll see implementation. But talk a little bit about what the USMCA agreement means for retailers. Is it just NAFTA 2.0 with some marginal changes or are we talking about a new model for trade agreements moving forward? I think it has, uh, you know, it, one of the reasons it passed uh, as overwhelmingly as it did, uh, in addition to adroit management by Ambassador Lighthizer, was it really is an upgrade. You know, the, the old NAFTA was 25 years old. It didn't address a lot of issues, digital trade being one of the... The worst trade agreement in history. Yes. Since the earth cooled, has yeah, At least. <laughs> but, you know, there, there were missing pieces because a lot has happened in 25 years, as, right. as you guys know better than anybody. Uh, and I think it addresses those in a fairly forthcoming fashion, a way that we had broad support in the business community. You're talking about the labor, environmental provisions, No, I'm talking trade. about uh, digital trade, uh, better IP provisions, a, a lot of things like that. Uh, the one area, I mean, you know, tariffs were already zero, so there's not a, a lot of difference as far as market access is concerned. The one area that has attracted the most, uh, the most uh, attention, which is a, a supply chain related area, is the new rules for automobiles. Right. Because there was a major effort there to, uh, I mean, it was, there was no secret about it. There was a major effort on the Trump administration's part to bring manufacturing back on shore. This is a theme of this administration. We don't want you to invest in Canada or Mexico. We want you to invest in the United States. We want you to produce in the United States. We want you to create jobs in the United States. Uh, in the early days of the negotiation, for example, there were a number of things that the administration put forward like a sunset, companies would come in and complain and say that we can't deal with this kind of uncertainty. You know, if this thing's going away for five years, what do we know? How do we, you know, make arrangements in Mexico? So the and sunset provision, though, says what? Says it would have expired, what, six years, I guess, yes. afterwards, unless all three agreed to extend it. And the business community complaint was this it adds uncertainty to the mix. And the administration's answer was basically, we like uncertainty right. because when you have uncertainty, you don't invest there, you stay here. And that's what we want. And the auto rules were designed to do that. Now, the Scholl chair actually did a study of this last year on, on how the rules of origin would affect supply chains using uh, NAFTA autos as a case study. And what we concluded was that uh, if that was the policy, uh, it'll work that it will produce more onshore uh, automobile uh, jobs, mostly parts and components manufacturing. Right. Uh, but it will do it at a cost, which I think you all will, will understand intuitively. It will do it at a cost of making uh, the domestic industry less competitive globally. 
because it will increase their costs. It'll probably reduce the number of automobiles that are sold. But again, it's a short-term versus long-term issue. In short-term, it's going to bump up jobs. Long-term, it's going to put the industry in a worse position. Look, the, the, the USMCA had the most unusual political arc of any trade agreement I'm familiar with. This went from bipartisan opposition to strong bipartisan support. And that's still a mystery to me in some ways. Look, key campaign promise by candidate Donald Trump was to renegotiate it. NAFTA was the worst agreement since the earth cooled. I'm gonna make it luxurious and beautiful. Which is why he'll never call it NAFTA 2.0, okay? It is the USMCA. It was opposed because from the outset, it was not a reciprocal free trade agreement. It was the senior partner, the United States, dictating terms to two junior partners, Mexico and Canada. Uh, and uh, most of us didn't like the, 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 the cut of that, didn't think that was ultimately the way our companies might benefit from more effective, open, contestable markets and competition. Uh, and it, it got stuck in a few places. There was a moment when I talked to some corporate representatives and it seemed like they were longing for the, the, this negotiation to take a turn like season nine of Dallas where Bobby walks out of the shower and it was all just a dream and we could go right back to the old NAFTA. But at the end of the day, they pulled it together. They convinced uh, Democrats in Congress who had basically spent 20 years opposing the NAFTA to ultimately supported, including Rich Trumka, the president of the FLCIO, from strong opposition. I thought he, they could get him to neutrality. It, uh, it, it would be a miracle to get him to neutrality. He, he and his organization, in fact, supported the new NAFTA, which led to 90% of the House, 89 senators voting in support. Pretty remarkable turnaround. So is the USMCA then a miracle that we had so many Democrats, folks that have never voted in favor of a free trade agreement before, folks like Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio, voting in favor of a trade agreement that liberalizes trade across the board, but in some circumstances, like on the auto rules of origin, where they created basically managed trade rules. Is this sort of the miracle trade agreement that's gonna be the model for future agreements? I think it's, I, I don't see it as a model because the circumstances are not the same in every case. First of all, it's, it's uh, the only one so far that's had to go to Congress. Right. His other deals have all been small, partial deals that he's been able to do within existing authority or because it was the other country that made all the concessions and we didn't make any. Uh, and I think that's going to continue. I think you're going to see more small deals. Uh, to the extent that he actually does one that's, that does have to go back to Congress, uh, you have to look at the issues. I mean, NAFTA was contentious uh, because of labor and the environment. And it was hard for Democrats because of labor and the environment. If you look at some future agreements that are uh, you know, in play, EU, UK, labor is not going to be a big issue there. I mean, I think the AFL-CIO's view is that European labor standards are probably higher than ours, and they'd be happy to have the United States uh, make concessions to the Europeans. I don't think it's going to be a big issue with the UK right. either. Um, environment, maybe. Uh, I, I don't think it's a model. I, it's more than one-off in the sense that on a lot of issues, the upgrades, Digital trade, uh, the IP rules, uh, things like that, you know, prohibitions on data localization, the rules on state-owned enterprises to the extent they're in there, which is not a big issue with Canada and Mexico. Those things will reappear to the extent that we try to negotiate with other countries, but those weren't the controversial things anyway. Right. Now, look, we, we're in a, in a position where, presuming Canada approves the implementing bill uh, in their parliament, which they're expected to, 
we have finally reached, for the first time in three years, a place of relative certainty in North American trade. Nobody's threatening to pull out of the NAFTA anymore. Okay, so not yet. Not yet. There's still time. That's a good thing. Okay, and probably will stay a good thing for a little while. On the other hand, I'm myself a little disappointed in the popularity of America First, take it or leave it. You know, manage trade. Uh, in both the administration and the Congress. I'm, I'm not sure that leads to the kind of success we've seen in, in, in American firms who want to engage in the world economy in a way that's fair and, and uh, equitable. So the administration has set forth these uh, goals to negotiate trade deals or trade agreements, depending on who you're talking to, but basically trade deals with the United Kingdom, with the European Union, India, there's a long, Kenya, there's a long list of other countries that the administration wants to negotiate these liberalized rules on. Talk a little bit about the U.S. role and whether or not we can effectively, like Bill talked about, bully some of these countries into our trade rules, what we want to see out of these deals. Well, you have to start where I think the president's coming from and go back to the campaign. He articulated a policy of victimization. Uh, the United States has been taken advantage of for a long time in trade uh, by the foreigners. It's their fault. It's also the fault of all of his predecessors who failed to real, uh, deal with the problem. Uh, and so what he wants is redress. And uh, Secretary Ross has said this much more clearly, which is, you know, we've been giving in to the foreigners for 40 years. Now it's time for them to give back. So the United States envisions trade agreements in which we concede nothing and they concede everything. Uh, that's not usually a way to get to a successful negotiation, but that gets you to the other element of, of the president's trade policy, which is actually one that some of his Democratic opponents share, which I think is kind of interesting, which is that access to the American market is so attractive that people will pay for it. They'll pay more than they've paid so far. I think that's empirically wrong, but uh, you know, we'll see. But the, well, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, you know, it's your fault that you have problems. I'm going to blame you. Mm -hmm. And in order to fix that, you need to make more concessions to the United States. Uh, that's the model. Uh, lots of threats, lots of bluster. But if you look at the record, um, in the end, he folds. Uh, you know, what we got from the Koreans, what we got from the Japanese, what we got from the Mexicans, actually, was way short of what he demanded in the first place. Maybe, but the narrative is not, I folded. Oh, definitely. The narrative is, I delivered. I had a brilliant success. I yes. had a brilliant success. And so far, thanks to the, the votes in Congress, nobody's contradicting that narrative. There's a question that fits in with this, which is the one that's crept up to number two. Have Republicans moved to an anti-free trade and Democrats changed to free trade over this? Well, it's currently, it's definitely in flux. What we know is the historical position of both parties is different than their recent position. The historical position of Republicans is for the tariff. They were the, par they were the party for uh, basically industrial pr protection, going back to Benjamin Harrison and, and uh, William McKinley. Alexander Neville. Alexander Neville, the, the, the high tariff party, and Democrats, mainly Southern planters, were the free trade party. But you literally had Grover Cleveland, governor of New York, Democrat, free trade, small government Democrat, running against Jay Harrison, the senator from Indiana, running high tariff and the national programs like the Sherman Act, uh, national regulations. So the parties have, have switched positions. Voters never did, though. This is what's interesting about the, what was revealed in Trump's campaign. In, in 2016 is that Republican voters were both more skeptical of, of, of trade uh, because they were older and more rural. Democratic voters were more in favor of trade and trade agreements because they were younger and more urban, 
because that's where trade happens these days, was young people in cities, yet the parties themselves were out of sync. And so we're seeing a realignment. I don't know where this winds up. We don't, we don't have a core integrating idea like we did in, in the post-war era. The integrating idea was peace, world peace, and the idea of reciprocal agreements started by Franklin Roosevelt uh, carried through as a way to convince the American people it was the right thing to do to improve the world this way. We don't have that integrating idea, so it, it, we'll see where it yeah, goes. I'm not sure. I, I used to have, I used to propound that thesis that this okay. is a return to historic <laughs> positions, and I, I was thinking I, this came up at a conference I went to yesterday, and I sort of decided I was wrong about that. Uh, it's true that right now, and actually for the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, democratic support for free trade, or for open trade, and trade agreements has been significant uh, and consistent and greater than Republican support. Uh, Republican support dipped uh, in 2015, 16, and 17. Right. Uh, it started to come back, but it is still not, it's like 59% think trade is a good thing. 72% uh, of Democrats think trade is a good thing. Voters, not, voters, not, not politicians. But Scott is quite right. The politicians are out of sync with the voters. Democratic politicians are less pro-trade than their voters. Republican politicians are more pro-trade than their voters. Uh, I think this has a lot to do with where they get their financial and organizational support. The Democrats get it from organized labor. Uh, the Republicans get it from uh, organized business. I guess you could say Chamber that, the Chamber of Commerce. Right. So there's historic ties there. I'm inclined to think this is a disjuncture that's going to continue for some time because if you have to look at other poll data where a different question is asked. If you ask quite people uh, their opinions about trade, you get what we've been talking about. If you ask a different question, what are the three biggest problems that the country faces today? Trade is number seven. Uh, climate change, sadly, is number eight. If you, if you give them a choice of 12, uh, as some other pollsters have done, trade is number 11. Uh, the big three are terrorism, health care, and the economy, and they kind of take turns being number one. Uh, but trade is near the bottom of the list. It is what pollsters refer to as a low-intensity issue. I can think of probably a half a dozen members of Congress in eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania whose political futures may rest on how they vote on trade agreements. But for most people, when they vote, they're going to be thinking about something else. Uh, and I think when they vote, the people that voted for Trump, when they voted for Trump, they were voting for somebody who, uh, it was a combination, it wasn't just trade. It was it, what he was saying about immigrants and what he was saying about political elites, what he was saying to the people in the countries that you've been forgotten by the government and I'm going to say, solve that problem. It's a much more complicated picture. And I don't think that's going to change as, as, as rapidly as, uh, as some do. Well, clearly there's a lot more work that we all need to do in talking about our jobs, our role in making trade work in the global value chain. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thank Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.